All right, we are live. I am so happy to announce that we are joined by Daniel DiMartino Booth, CEO and founder of Quill Intelligence, and always Joseph Wang, former senior uh, trader for the New York Fed. Great to have you both here. I want to start by asking you, Danielle, you know, it's Monday, May 2nd, and the FOMC meeting starts tomorrow. And on Wednesday, we're going to get the statement. We're going to get Fed Chair Jay Powell out there talking to the press. What's your expectation for, for how everything is going to play out this week? So I'll just I'll give you my, my bottom line first. Uh, and that is that, that, that Powell eviscerated his credibility by sticking to the transitory narrative. He, if he wants to harm his credibility even more, he can insist that the economy is very strong. He can, he can ride the ship all the way over the, the waterfall. Just boom, bye-bye. If he really wants to get rid of what's left of his credibility, he can continue insisting this economy is very strong. Because if there's one thing they teach you on the day one at the Fed, and, and Joseph can vouch for this, they tell you that monetary policy acts with a lag. Day two, they tell you that unemployment is the most lagging of all economic indicators. So these are the things that you, you're drilled into you when you're at the Fed. And Jay Powell knows that hanging on to labor being strong in the face of the second largest private employer in the country, Amazon, announcing that it had built out too many warehouses and it had too many people and it was going to start reducing headcount. It's his credibility is on the line right now. And where specifically are you seeing the greatest pockets of weakness is in the U.S. economy? And sort of how are you thinking that uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell and the Fed will be able to achieve their much desired soft landing? Look, look, Fed officials don't come out and, and, and speak against the machine. They don't. They, they carry, they tow the line forever and ever, unless maybe you're Bill Dudley. They tow the line forever and ever. And for Roger Ferguson to come out this morning, former vice chair, uh, to come out and say, we're headed into a recession. I don't think there's, a, the reason I say he's going to eviscerate his, what's left of his credibility if he insists that the economy is strong is because that implies that he can engineer a soft landing when missing the window to tighten last year when he could have engineered a soft landing didn't occur. So now we, we just have to ask how much Volcker is in him and how forthright is he going to be about the recession? Maybe it's going to be what, whatever, whatever Yellen said a few years ago, it, shallow and, and and not long in duration. Maybe he can shift the narrative to saying, you know what, we're not going to have like Armageddon, but the economy is going to slow as we tame inflation. And that's just a risk we're going to have to take in order to fulfill our mandate. You mentioned Bill Dudley. Oh, sorry, uh, just uh, and to, to, to Daniel's point, we had a pretty weak GDP reading, right? So it does oh. appear like the, you know, the economy is uh, slower than, than oh, expected. Yeah. I mean, Jack, to answer your question, which I never did, inventories, housing, um, you know, the fact that we've got our ports completely uncongested with China blowing up, China blowing up. I mean, that you can't say the marginal consumer of commodities on planet Earth. By the way, have a look at iron ore or copper. Have a look at those charts right now. You cannot say that the marginal consumer of commodities is is possibly going into recession, according to my buddy Leland Miller, and not going to have some kind of a ripple effect on the rest of the uh, global economy, especially emerging markets that are like dropping like flies. So there's just there's there's no credible and, and we're seeing inventories, regardless of the regional Fed survey you look at, backlogs, excuse me, future, future backlogs, future new orders, future employment, future work week, future inventory. They're all turning down across the board nationwide. 
And that tells you that people have replenished their stocks from shifting to just in time to just in case inventory. But we have an entire generation of operational managers. They don't know how to handle inventory expense because they've never had to deal with it. So, Danielle, the Federal Reserve has been talking very tough over the past few months. And in terms of verbiage, the, the shorter, shorter term interest rate futures are indicating that the Federal Reserve will be very, very hawkish. You know, a 50 basis point increase uh, on Wednesday is almost certain, but they're indicating a triple for the next one and, you know, doubles and, and doubles and triples all the way out to December of this year, where it's 3%. And I think the, the terminal rate uh, by summer 2023 is about 3.4, 3.5%. Do you think that with the economy slowing as much as you see, the Federal Reserve will be able to get there? I, I don't actually. And I think that I think that there are some Fed officials who believe that they can get there and that they absolutely must get there. And they're willing to sacrifice financial conditions along the way. It's pretty apparent that they are. But this is, I will remind financial market historians, the 22nd anniversary of the May 2000 50 basis point rate hike. The last time they did that, it didn't work out very well then because speculative bubbles had been allowed to form in the market that made Fed policy that much more damaging to an economy that is that is buried in overvaluation. You're seeing it in bond issuance being pulled. We had Bloomberg reports today that we had five to eight investment grade bond uh, deals pulled just today. When liquidity starts, he can let the stock market go. And I think the stock market's got that message. I don't know if anybody can tell you what the, 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 the Fed put strike price is, but it's lower than it used to be. They cannot let credit go. Can't do it. They cannot let credit go because credit is systemic and credit is global in nature, which means we don't know where it lands. We don't know if in, if it's in Japanese banks, concentrated holdings of CLOs. We don't. We just we don't know what could happen. But it is definitely against the Fed's mandate to allow financial instability to crop up, as hawkish as they might want to be. Yeah, so, so that's interest rates, the price of money. There's also the quantitative of money, which is quantitative easing, quantitative tightening. So you, you mentioned liquidity and quantitative easing brought tons of liquidity to the market. How, how, how much uh, do you, liquidity do you think the Federal Reserve will be able to take away from the market in quantitative tightening? I mean, we're, we're finding out in real time. And again, remember not QE and this corporate tax quarterly payment that came about that really kind of shook up a dynamic that was already really fragile. Well, right now we've had tax receipts go through the moon. So you've got reserves coming down because of that idiosyncrasy in and of itself. And there are people who are about to be in, in property tax shock right now. And it's a big check that they're going to have to write right after they wrote their taxes. So I mean, ev everywhere I go, people, oh, you're an economist? My property taxes. I'm like, okay, I'm not a real estate. I'm, I'm, but that's all they want to talk about. My property, time, my, the, the, my property taxes have gone through the moon. They just raised the value of my house by $100,000. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, the Fed could have backed out of MBS earlier and then I immediately lose them. But, but the fact is, you've got two sources of, of a drag on household liquidity in the background while the Fed is attempting to launch quantitative tightening as of Wednesday, presumably. Joseph, what is your outlook on the, the news that we're going to get from quantitative tightening? I think right now, according to the previous minutes, it's we're going to get the ultimate goal is to have 95 
uh, a billion in roll off every single month. So tell us your outlook on that. And then I know because you know, you're, you're deep in the weeds on this. Uh, please feel free to ask Danielle a question if, about, uh, about QT. Well, you know, the Fed, the Fed, as Dario knows, likes to doesn't like to surprise the market. So Powell has basically taken out this huge billboard and told everyone how QT is going to be. Like you mentioned, Jack, it's going to be $95 billion a month, $60 billion in treasuries, 35 in MBS, and maybe, maybe sometime down the line they're going to sell. And there's going to probably be a ramp-up period as well. I think what, they, what you want to know is that this time around, QT is going to be so, so much more aggressive than last time around. Last time around, the maximum that we did was $50 billion a month, $50 billion. And that's after like a, 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 you know, a year of steadily ramping up. This time around, we're going to probably be at $95 billion in about three months. So it's going to be a very short ramp-up period, and it's going to be very aggressive. Danny, what do you think? Can you think the markets could take this? You know what? The markets, again, I, when, when you see on a Monday of the Fed drift week, right? Stocks are just to drift upwards, gently drift upwards into 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard on Wednesday. There's no drifting upwards right now. Uh-uh. And every time that you say, you know, it's the end of April and April's a great month for the stock market. So, so stocks are going to rally back and finish strong. Uh-uh. So we're breaking so many rules right now because I think the market knows that, 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 that Powell's going to let the stock market go. They don't know how much Powell's going to let the stock market go. But we're going to find out really quickly with quantitative tightening. We've already seen in the H8, uh, which, which we follow every Friday, uh, other deposits, liabilities, you've already seen that flatline and threatened to go negative year over year. So we're, we're seeing manifest liquidity depletion, and that's why you're seeing junk bond spreads, you're seeing junk bond yields. Yeah, I think triple C's are 10% plus. I mean, it's actually a junk bond yield. It's it's a true thing. It's a high yield. So it, a lot is going to depend on how this depleted liquidity manifests in the global markets, in emerging markets, and in the investment grade and high yield corporate bond markets. We forget that part of the legislation that was passed right before Trump left office, Pat Toomey put a stipulation in that legislation verbiage that stipulates that the Fed whoever was going to be treasury secretary, and now it's Janet Yellen, that she can't just, hey, Jay, it's Janet. We need to flip those credit facilities back on right now, pronto. The verbiage of the legislation says that they need to go back to Congress with a new, unusual, and exigent circumstance in order to justify going that route again with BlackRock. So there's no like, we're buying HYG, we're buying LQD, all is good. And that's why you've seen especially these last few weeks, you've seen HYG begin to catch up with LQD. LQD was the leader in terms of seeing the, the, the downdraft. But these last few weeks, you're seeing HYG catch up. And now they're down just about the same amount over a one-year period. Well, that's you know, fa- no, I agree, actually. I think it's a really good point that Danielle makes that, you know, Paul will be happy to let the equity market go. What's really much more important, well, okay, he's not going to be happy, but he's willing to do it. But Powell, but they're definitely much more concerned about the corporate credit market, like Danielle mentioned. I mean, the way that the financing works is that if you're a company in the U.S., you get a lot of your financing comes from the bond market. If you need money, you don't go out and you issue new stocks. Stocks kind of just float around every day. It's basically a way for a senior management to cash out. When you really need money, you go and you, you issue bonds. So that's kind of why 
during, for example, during the COVID crisis, the Fed went out and they wanted to stabilize the bond market because that's how companies get money to function. And so focusing on things like, you know, credit spreads and whether or not deals can be done, that's definitely what you want to want what you want to work look at like Dana mentioned those spreads that that's that's what the Fed will be focused on and if things get really bad that's where they would step in the S&P could go down a lot but it's really not systemic important corporate America the economy will function fine if S&P is down 20 30 points but if the companies can't borrow money they can't make payroll they can't get inventory then you have to, you have a real crisis on hand that's a real economy issue so um, definitely focus more on the corporate corporate bond market side. Yeah, and I mean, it, we're not talking about like huge numbers. However, we have so many zombies in our midst at this point, one in every five US companies, they have to roll their debt over. They're, it's not an option. It's not an A or a B. They have to roll the debt. And you know, people talk all the time about the, you know, the d- demise of the dollar, blah, blah, blah. There's a trillion dollars total in global non-financial debt that has to be refinanced in 2022. So we may be losing the dollar one day in our collective future, but right now, companies around the world are focused on getting their dollar-denominated debt refinanced this year. And how wide do these credit spreads have to get, Danielle, before, to Jay Powell, it's, it's sort of a 50-50 that the inflation problem and the, the credit situation are as big a problem? Because right now, the inflation problem is huge. And as you say, the, the Federal Reserve has been woefully behind the curve. Uh, and I think you said that they lost their credibility. So pressure's on them now to tighten inflation. How how big, how, you know, how out of control do things have to get in the credit market for them to change their outlook once again? Well, what triggered the, the initial Powell pivot was 41 days of no junk bond issuance starting November the 14th, 2018. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that was what triggered the initial Powell pivot. It's We're going to have to see a repeat of no bond sales. Mm. And we're seeing bond sales being pulled. Mm. Daniel, you've got a great uh, quote from one of your reports at, at Quill Intelligence. You say there is a rich history between the two in fast rising rate environments that lengthen the lives of mortgages by re- restricting refinancing and sales. So as as Joseph said, there's going to be uh, 35 of mortgage, 35 billion of mortgage-backed securities that's going to likely be the cap to roll off. However, if people don't, if uh, mortgage rates rise and people aren't refinancing their mortgages, the duration of those mortgage-backed securities extends dramatically. Can you explain just how important that is as as well as how that will impact the Federal Reserve's ability to tighten? So this is where things get extraordinarily tricky because you can talk about roll-off all day long. It's like saying Voldemort in the Echo building to say sell. It really is a no-no. And it wasn't, that Rubicon was not crossed last time. So unless you're talking about twisting, which you're not. You're not talking about easing policy. You're talking about tightening it. So I think that that it will be incumbent upon the Fed to try and avoid at all costs selling those mortgage-backed securities. You will literally see Elizabeth Warren's head explode. Now, it's just an accounting maneuver. There's no technical loss if the Fed gets rid of a 2% coupon in a 5% mortgage environment environment rate. It doesn't matter. There will be people who immediately jump on the Federal Reserve losing money. Mm. So, yeah. So for you guys following at home. Joseph's thoughts on that. What, what Danielle was saying is that, so we, we were, the Fed bought a whole bunch of mortgages when interest rates are low, right? Now that interest rates are higher, the fixed income bonds, they're losing value. So that means the, the Fed is sitting on a, sitting on a market, uh, on a market loss. So, 
if they were to sell, what will happen is that they would take a realized loss. And that's, that's what Daniel's mentioning. That would make Congress really upset. And people like, you know, maybe, maybe Warren would, would be very mad that the Fed is basically <laughs> uh, buying stuff and just losing a bunch of taxpayer money. Although I don't even know if that matters anymore. I mean, just finances everything, right? So <laughs> taxpayer money is a They don't phrase. technically take a loss. They, they move things yeah. around. It's, exactly. It's, so, it's an accounting move. It's, uh, don't, don't get me wrong. My Twitter feed in the middle of the night, it will be more explosive than Elizabeth Warren's head. But okay, I'll explain this actually. Happens. So what happens actually is that Fed, like, like uh, Daniel mentioned, doesn't actually technically take a loss. So if you're like a real commercial bank, what would happen if you sold something for loss? Then you would mark down your equity. You'd, that, that would basically absorb the loss. But the Fed never marks down its capital, never marks down its equity. So what will happen is that they'll put a place order. It's called uh, uh, some, some, some kind of fake asset that it makes up. And eventually <laughs> that, that asset will be amortized through uh, future earnings to Treasury. So... For example, if the Fed lost $100 on its MBS uh, on its MBS portfolio, next time when it was going to give Treasury an extra $100 in interest income, it will take that it will keep that $100 and pay itself back that loss. So it's going it's a loss that basically amortizes out of future payments to Treasury. Happy taxpayers. <laughs> uh, Daniel, you've done a lot of work on the real estate market in particular. Can you describe, uh, there's something you call the, the Powell, Powell predicament. Why is, is real estate essentially the, the epicenter of, of, of Powell's predicament and you know, we, the wealth effect on the way up? And now we're having sort of the wealth effect uh, in reverse. What's your, what's your take? So I remember back in the day, and I'm sure Joseph remembers too, there, was these, there were these special FDIC fees that came out like at exactly the wrong time, around the time of the crisis. So they've recently put a, a, an additional assessment on mortgage rates excuse me, for second home purchases at just the wrong time. Their second home purchases have been kind of driving this train in many ways. That Those home sales have literally reversed course, changed, changed direction. So, and you've got people looking at their stock portfolio going, you know, I winterized my lake home during COVID, spent a lot of money on it, moved out to my lake home for some people, Maybe I'm still working from my lake home, working from home, if I'm fortunate enough to be in that, in that cohort. What's my home in Chicago or New York or Sanford? Why am I carrying two property taxes, two mortgages? Why am I doing this right now if my stock portfolio is starting to get hurt? Solution, the housing market's white hot. I'll just monetize that. I'll just take it and it'll pad me and I'll sleep better at night. So my argument is that Powell cannot let housing or credit go. The ripple effects would just be disastrous. And you've seen pending home sales come down. You've seen mortgage applications come down to purchase a home. This, this train is pulled out of the station, except for investors. Yeah, and it's actually impacting the labor market, too. Uh, you've got this fantastic chart. We can put it up here, which is... Uh, the, the, the survey of mortgage companies in green is they're increasing employees and orange is that they're decreasing. They're letting people go. And uh, now there are almost five times as many companies letting people go as there are as there are uh, hiring people. So it's it is the the uh, sad effect of when a, a credit cycle and, a, and a, an asset cycle goes in reverse. 
uh, you know, pe real people get affected, not just in the financial market, but in in uh, the actual economy, too. In the real economy, that's right. And that's a March timestamp. This is before Blend. This is before Rocket. This is before Wells Fargo. Um, this was before a huge bank, something Franklin, something in the Midwest, <coughs> who just laid off 450. So that number is well over 50% of people downsizing right now. And that's going to trickle through to the real estate agent community as well. Yeah, and I think people who are, you know, viewers who are not familiar with the real estate market, this will probably shock them. But I think that the next chart may shock them even more, which is just how wide mortgage rates uh, are, are are now in, in the state of, of 2022. Uh, they're the, they are the widest they've been since the great financial crisis. And in particular, the rate of change that I'm seeing on this chart on the top is immense. It, it is incredible. What 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 does that do to a market when you go from a negative spread to uh, you know a 120 basis point spread in a matter of, of a few months? Well, I mean, there's a third chart that you could pull up that was the sister chart to those bars, um, and it basically shows the the percentage of <coughs> mortgage uh, brokers and lenders who are losing money increasingly on each deal that they do, because this is not a tenable situation. This is not something that can continue in the mortgage industry. Mm. I, I see this and I see the power of QT. This is just the taper. This was just the taper that produced this, not QT yeah. itself. Yes, it's, it's, it's the QT. I, you know, this is a very ominous sign for the impact of QT when it actually comes into effect. And you know, and I agree with Daniel. It's very unlikely that we actually have mortgage sales, but but if we do, uh, it's going to look even worse. It is. And look, I mean, look. If there's one thing that I I follow every single day, it's the move. And you know, we've blown past post-pandemic highs in the move. The move advertises credit risk. It flags it. It's not a pure play reflection of it. It's it's treasury risk, but it flags counterparty risk issuance risk, credit risk. And we and the move is higher than it was in March of 2020. Today. Really? Wow. So for you guys who, who are who, who don't the move is basically the VIX Thank for interest rates. So. I need to do every single every single appearance I need to do with you, Joseph, so you can translate what the hell I'm saying. <laughs> so as you, as you guys see, so the treasury rates, they're fluctuating a lot, right? Today, we have the 10-year you know, down 10 basis points at one time. That's a tremendous, tremendous amount of volatility for, for interest rates. So it's no surprise that we would see uh, the move, the volatility index for rates just be so high, as Daniel mentioned. And a lot of that is because of the Fed as well. Part of it is poor liquidity. But no one has any idea what the Fed is doing anymore. So, you know, last year, we were like, they were like, you know, we're not going to hike at all. And then now they're like 25 basis points. Now they're 50 basis points. And now maybe they're doing 75 basis points because no one has any idea what, what they're doing. So it's, uh, it's very difficult to price. Yeah, the, the move index is on is the yellow line on the chart on the left. And it, it measures implied volatility in the, the treasury market. So if the Federal Reserve is hiking or easing a lot and they th the market thinks that things are going to be crazy, the move is very high. And Danielle, th so this chart uh, on the left, it's, it's, it, the move index is higher. This is, this is uh, a few days old, I guess. So it's, it's move index is it's higher than 20, 2008. That, that is it, remarkable. It's not higher than the crisis. It's not higher than 2008, but it's higher than it was after the pandemic. And oh, right, yeah. the way that credit sprisk, the, the, the reason we put higher unemployment expectations against this one series is to show you that once 
the move has flagged credit risk and credit risk does get unleashed and layoffs follow, that's why it's got such a tight relationship with unemployment expectations rising. Yeah, there's a pretty big disconnect between the, the yellow and the blue line, as could be seen in the chart. But Joseph, the point about the move index being a leader, uh, being a predictor of credit stress is really interesting because earlier Danielle mentioned that LQD, investment grade credit, uh, ha was, was having a worse year than HYG, high yield credit. And I and I, I want to predict that both of them were having better years than something like TLT, which is, and I think the real point is is duration, which is the longer, uh, the more exposed a, an ETF or a, a portfolio has been to interest rate risk. Up until very recently, Joseph, that is where the bulk of the pain has been. And I think I'm actually a few, uh, you know, a few days out of the loop because I, I'm shocked to hear that the triple C is, is at, is at uh, 10%. That, that really is very wide. So, uh, Joseph, I, I, uh, Danielle's framework, as I understand it, is that pretty soon the bulk of the, the losses in the fiscal income market will continue, but they will uh, shift more away from the risk-free interest rate risk and move more to, to credit risk. Uh, I'm curious, what is, is your view on that? And you can sort of take the question anywhere you want. I think that's more of a question of how the real economy will perform, right? So if we have more credit risk, basically what's going to happen is that real economy companies are, are going to have more stress. I think that, in my view, that's going to depend largely on these geopolitical events that are happening in the world. What What's happening, it seems like there's going to be this huge impending negative supply shock that's coming because the world is, seems to be balkanizing between Russia and, and its allies in the West. And so a lot of companies are probably going to have a lot of much higher costs that will eat into their profits and that might make it more difficult for them to service their debt. And so that, I think to me, that negative real economy shop could feed in and cause credit spreads to widen because there is some risk then that those that they will not be able to, well, those costs will basically eat into their profits. Yeah, so, and, but and, and, yeah, I, I agree, Joseph. And, and you're referring to what we would consider to be like food and energy. You're yeah, yeah. And, and a whole bunch of raw materials too. Like it's it's amazing all these raw materials that Russia and the Ukraine export. I was just reading about neon. So for example, yeah, neon is a great example. Yeah. But meanwhile, back at the ranch, they are also holding onto too much of what they don't necessarily need, and the demand is not soaking it up. I mean, who would have thought a year ago that you would hear Ford Motor say? Our March F-150 sales fell 47%, even though we shipped to dealers 74% more F-150s. A year ago, you would have never had that discussion. I mean, just to put that more concrete, let's say that we do have a neon shortage, then that affects all the chip makers, which then affects basically everything that uses chips, cell phones, computers, cars. Now, if you are a, com if you are a company, a real economy company, you can't actually produce as much stuff as you thought you could. How are you going to service your debt, right? So I think that's a mechanism where we have to be concerned where that that could actually feed into to credit spreads. Um, so it's it's really hard because these are these are geopolitical problems, and we don't really know. I'm not an expert in these commodity stuff. I think it's fascinating, but it, there is that potential there. And Joseph, just to, just for a record, uh, what is the effect of the Fed's balance sheet? Uh, on the supply of ne of neon. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, um, none. <laughs> That's kind yeah, of a, a problem. Those buttons. What if they printed a lot of money and went to buy a lot of neon? <laughs> yeah, but but I think we're going to be looking at a bifurcated bifurcated commodities market. 
Yeah. One sure. that is affected by what's going on in Ukraine and one that's disaffected by what's going, what's not going on in China. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, explain that. When, when Jay Powell goes out there and says so much of the inflation that we see, it's transitory, it's supply chain driven. He's not implying, going to that anymore. <laughs> yeah, not, not transitory. But, but I'm talking about in the past. It, they're right. It is supply chain driven. But is that not just an advertisement of how uh, powerless the Federal Reserve is to control supply chain price pressures? They were and they are and they remain. Um, but again, as long as China's not building things, as Xi Jinping fights for his political future. As long as they're not buying up all the iron ore and all the copper and what have, as long as it's not constrained by what's going on in Ukraine, then you're going to see those prices come under pressure. And you already have. If it's fertilizer, if it's neon, if it's wheat, if it's anything that you need coming out of the war torn area, forget it. Kiss it goodbye. It's expensive. And not just that, there, there's a tremendous, there are lockdowns in China, right? So not just their economy, they, they won't even be able to ship things if they, if, if they build them. So that's, that's, uh, that's something that I don't think has fully hit the shores yet. You're right. I do have pneumonia. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us uh, while you're feeling ill. We, we really, really are grateful for your time. Uh, when you mentioned wheat, that made me think of Egypt, and that made me think of all the great work you've been doing on uh, emerging markets, particularly emerging market debt. I was just reading your piece you know, an hour before we went live, and I was shocked. I had to read it again. You write, there are more than twice as many emerging market countries with debt trading as if it were on the brink of default than there were af uh, after the pandemic hit. That is shocking. It is, and it goes to show you how sensitive the world is to financial conditions. To what, I mean, what, what Jim Bullard says matters in Cairo. She's an extreme example. <laughs> Excuse me. So it's what, well, and, and to me this time it's it's not the subprime. It's not some warehouse somewhere in Bank Bank of New York Mellon. The the canary this time. <coughs> Hope I make this. The canary this time is emerging markets. To me, that's the canary in the entire potential for crisis with what's going on with Fed policy. So to make that more concrete, it's it's really the dollar, I think, that's crushing the emerging markets. So the way that this works is that the dollar is, is this crazy global currency where people from all over the world borrow in dollars. And when the dollar strengthens these emerging markets, they basically, their debt becomes bigger. Now imagine, for example, if you borrowed a mortgage in euros and suddenly your USD went to 1.5, right? Then holy shit, you, your debt is suddenly a lot more than it, it is now. And that's the same problem that they have uh, right now when the dollar strengthens. So the emerging markets is a very, very troubled place to be right now. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's spreading and it's spreading fast. Um. Danielle, you're you know, you're very insider at the Fed, so I really I want to get your insight because I know that the Federal Reserve typically is very wary of dollar squeezes when the DXY shoots higher, like it did in 2014 during the taper tantrum, like it did during March 2020 when the Federal caused the Federal Reserve to extend all these swap lines to countries all around the globe. Is this dollar squeeze different because at this particular junction, the Federal Reserve would welcome a tightening of financial conditions, whether it comes from uh, risky rates shooting up, credit spreads uh, widening, or uh, the, the hiking, the, the um, you know, shooting up of the dollar? Well, A, I think the dollar right now is just as violent as any of the episodes that you just described. Um, I think that they would whip open those swap lines if need be, while tightening, if they had to. I mean, 
effectively global easing domestic tightening. And, and how effective do you think those swap lines be? You know, I, I used to be of the view that the Federal Reserve was uh, did not have a lot of power, but I've been spending a lot of time with Joseph learning from him, and now I have a little bit more confidence in the Federal Reserve's ability to control global monetary conditions. What, you know, if the DXY shoots up to 105, let's say, and they extend swap lines, do you think it's containable? I don't know. Check, check the triple C yield. That'll tell you. <laughs> I, I do check this now. 10.5 yield to worst triple C. Wow. That is, that is remarkable. It, it depends on the trickle through. It depends on the contingent effect. It depends on what affects what in terms of their efficacy, because they're not doing anything in a vacuum and markets are interrelated. We've seen currencies absolutely throw up. That's the biggest market in the world. So there are effects everywhere. And all this is being traded and all this is leveraged. Mm -hmm. And Daniel, have you made sense of the trading conditions over the past four months, from over the past year, as short-term rates have uh, uh, exploded higher, long-term rates has as well. And even though there was a brief inversion of the 210 yield curve, I believe today the 10-year Treasury note just hit a whopping 3% for the first time, I think, since 2018. So uh, what, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, Jay Powell got what he wanted, right? He wanted 3% in 2018. He just had to wait a few years to get it. <laughs> um, but look, I, I, I call me a one-trick pony. Accuse me of being that. I, 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 don't, I just don't think this works. I don't think that this flies. And, I, and I, get that, I get that there's this great allure of having IOER come back with, a, with, with gusto. Why wouldn't Jamie Dimon say, let's have seven, let's have nine? Um, it could be a nice little line item, right? I don't think the market takes it. I just don't. I don't. That you, you can't tell me. Okay, the market couldn't handle tightening when corporate debt was ten trillion outstanding February 19, 2020. Two trillion dollars later, it's going to be just fine. How? Why? Tell me how. Joseph, all, all, all the landing stuff. I'm like, how? Tell me how that plays out, given what we're already seeing. If we rewind back a bit in 2018, you know, quarter four 2018, we were about where we are now in tightening. And basically the market just melted down every day that the stock market will go down until Powell basically, you know, panicked and did this huge Powell, Powell pivot in, in January of 2019. So we're at that level where we, where the market kind of just puked uh, in 2018. So we will see if they, if the market can handle it this time. But as Daniel mentioned, so the more debt you have, that means when you hike, there are more losses, right? So mm -hmm. if you have a bond, you hike, you lose money, right? Now you have more bonds. When you hike, you lose more money. So someone somewhere is having big losses. So it stands to reason that I think someone who is leveraged eventually is going to have to blow up and puke and everyone else will puke with them. And when the blowups were happening during not QE in 18, in 19, the Fed was in an easing mode and looking for a black swan to launch real QE because the system was screaming for reserves. So it was looking for an excuse. The pandemic came along and gave it that excuse. Right now, they're not in that mode. Danielle, in 2018 with the Powell pivot, I think what people call the, the pivot was to stop hiking rates. And then it was until it wasn't until the summer after 20, September 2019 that the Federal Reserve stopped quantitative tightening. This time around, if the Federal Reserve stops tightening, which of the switches do you think will go off first? And is it different this time, considering that the QT switch has not even gone on yet? Which switch first? 
I think that they would pull the plug on quantitative tightening immediately just to get the liquidity flowing back into the market. If Mohamed Al-Aria did a really good job a few days ago of describing, you know, we're toast if liquidity credit risk pop up because then it's, it's, it's all games are just completely off. So I think QT would be switched off very quickly. They did it last time. They switched QT off. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what yeah. Oh uh, no, I I I agree. I mean, usually what what happens is that you would you would stop with the extraordinary stuff, right? So you would you would stop with the balance sheet. Your your primary tool would still be uh, the the Fed funds rate. So um, that I think that's what they would do. They would stop with the balance sheet and just go back to their um, standard Fed funds tools. So Jack, I have a burning question for for Joseph. If I could be totally rude and ask. Yes. No, that'd be great. Total <laughs> total non sequitur. Um. So this standing repo facility, it ain't too popular. Why do you think that is? Oh, you mean there's not a lot of people signing up for it? Mm-hmm. Or... Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's so the standing repo facility for for you guys don't know it's a it's a it's a facility it's a ability to borrow from the Fed in repo. So if you have a treasury you, or an agency MBS security, you can go you can pledge out the Fed for a loan, a repo loan. Uh, it's basically an infinite facility. It has a theoretical maximum of like 500 billion. The people who can have access to it are the primary dealers and a bank if you want to have access to it. But as Daniel mentioned, very, very few banks signed up. That's because the banks really don't need that stuff. It's it's really silly that the Fed even thought they would need it. So the way that this the way that banks work post uh, 2018, they have all these liquidity regulations such that they, they really don't ever have liquidity problems. If you think about what happened during March 2020, you know, everything was breaking. Money funds were breaking. Dealers were breaking. Uh, corporate bond funds were breaking. But the banks, they were not breaking. They were flushed with liquidity and they were fine. So because of all these regulations and because of all the cash banks hold because of QE, they're basically never going to use the standing repo facility. And on top of that, most banks really are not sophisticated enough to use repo. We have about like 5,000 banks um, in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the U.S., Probably less than ten of them would be actually have, okay, maybe okay, maybe ten to twenty of them have enough sophistication and treasury to actually use repo, um, wholesale repo to borrow. So it's something that was never going to be popular with the banks. Um, I imagine the few that, that signed up, the Fed probably strongly encouraged them just to just to make the Fed feel better that they did something right. But yeah, so that's so um, I, I totally set you up. So what happens if treasury trading freezes? It's the dealers. The dealers would do that. So the banks themselves, the commercial banks, they won't really, uh, they don't really trade in treasuries. But the dealer businesses that they own, they do. So they're separate legal entities. The dealers will be active in using the standing repo facility if if there's a liquidity problem, but but not the banks. So uh, just so the banks would use the repo facility if they needed liquidity. For example, if someone wanted to withdraw money from J.P. Morgan Chase and for whatever reason they didn't have enough liquidity, but they had treasuries, then they could take that treasury and get a loan from the repo facility for liquidity to, to meet the withdrawal. Now, in terms of the treasury market, let's say if you're an investor and you're selling treasuries, you can sell it to a dealer who, if they didn't have enough money, could take that treasury and pledge it to, um, okay, so, and pledge it to the, uh, the Fed for liquidity. And then buy it from a uh, from seller. So it's just two separate things: dealers and banks. It's uh, related, but but separate. Okay. Thank you for indulging me, Jack. 
Of course, no, that was a great question and a great answer from Joseph. Joseph, in your first answer to Daniel's question, you said because of, there was a key word, key phrase, because of QE. And that's, there's so much cash in the system. There's a dearth of collateral. So why would you ever need repo? It's all, you know, as Daniel said, the, the standing repo facility is not popular, but the reverse repo facility, oof, that is very popular. I think 1.8 trillion now. But what if in a year, you know, all that's- on, It hit a record on Thursday or Friday. It hit a fresh record of 1.906. Wow. wow. Almost 2 trillion. That's, the, that's pretty amazing. You know, I, I remember when I was when I was uh, running the repo facility, uh, having five hundred billion. It was like, wow, year end. It's a it's a record, and now it's so far above. It's it's pretty cool. Uh, right, but but Joseph, if if what a lot of people think is going to play out, if things go according to plan, and QT happens, and uh, you know, mortgage-backed securities and treasuries are sold the amount of bank reserves in the system will decline and the relative share of collateral in the system will increase will the and the reverse repo will facility will will be drained it may absorb some of that i know you have views on that is there a point though where uh, the standing repo facility will become necessary yet again i don't believe it'll ever be necessary i mean there's just too much liquidity and i i think that eventually the fed will come back and do more qe Something will break. Something will break before we. So the Fed has this idea that they're going to shrink the balance sheet, let's say a trillion dollars a year for three years. That's that's just not going to happen. Something somewhere will break, and then we'll go back to QE mode. That's how it always is. Um, so uh, if, in some weird, bizarre way, we somehow be able to shrink the balance sheet such that we have don't have a lot of cash in the system, I think the standing repo facility can come into play. But uh, my base case is that something breaks, and we go back to. Uh, growing the balance sheet. <laughs> Daniel, what do you think? <laughs> well, look, I, um, I I get it. We've got inflation, but I, I think that I think that if and when something breaks, that we could have a, a massive wave of disinflationary impulse wave to go through the economy. And I think we're actually seeing that now. If you look at the stock of LVMH, if you look at the stock of boat makers, you can look, look at the stock of home builders. I mean, that's that those the real economy stocks that tell you that demand is down. And if demand is down and there's a shock to the system and it comes through the credit markets and you start to see layoffs, those are not inflationary moments. And uh, yeah, so so I think today we had a ISM manufacturing miss of 55.4 compared to a 57.6 that was expected. That's the lowest level since May 2020. And although you know, a, a reading above 50 does indicate growth, it still is the, the lowest since uh, May 2020. And also, Danielle, LVMH, I believe one of their biggest clients in terms of geography is China, where you're having a huge, huge slowdown. Mm -hmm. it's, it's all true. Look, the, the employment subcomponent um, hit 50.9 inside the ISM. Uh, customer inventory is still very low, but 37. Huge leap. Highest customer inventory since December 2020. Again, to Joseph's point, what if what if producers are struggling to get their hands on essential inputs that are affected by the war, but they're sitting on too much of what they don't want? And that's what the data are starting to say to us. Mm. Uh, Danielle, well, it's been fantastic uh, getting you on here. I, I really appreciate you sharing your insights as well as the fact that you are, you know, have pneumonia. It's it's incredible. Uh, my final question, I, I, but first of all, I really recommend you know, people check out your work on Twitter at DiMartino Booth. Um, at, so go ahead. 
Oh, so I would I would recommend Danielle's book. She's uh, she has a book called FedUp.com. So for you guys who don't know, there, there's not a lot of books written by insiders about how the Fed really works. There's one from the '80s, The Secrets of the Temple, and so forth. But Danielle's is is one that's very candid, very recent, and so I highly recommend that book for for a good, very good insider and totally honest way of how the Fed works from from an insider's perspective. So. It's up. I don't, I don't know if you have a copy of the book around, but it's it's on Amazon, highly rated. So I recommend. And it. I recorded it when I had pneumonia, so um, you know exactly <laughs> what I'm going to sound like. Yeah, uh, your best thoughts come out. And Daniel, I'd also say to to the audience is, uh, you know, your work at Quill Intelligence. I got lucky enough to read some of your reports in preparation for this interview, and they are extremely thoughtful. Have a lot of insights, so people should definitely uh, check them out. Also, Daniel, I didn't know, you know, I had a rough sense of, of your, your framework, um, your analysis, but I did not know that you were such a history buff on, on central banking in particular. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm every piece of research begins with some snippet of history of some kind at Quill. That's our that's our hallmark. We, I mean, we always entertain before we educate. Always. Great. Uh, well, my final question for you, Danielle, is how high what's your terminal rate? The market's terminal rate for the Fed funds is three point four. You know, give or take, it's obviously probabilistic. No one, no one knows. But how high do you think they get the Fed? I don't think we see three point four. I don't. I don't know that we see two point four. I just, I don't. Uh, just look at his track record. <clears throat> look at what the market bears. Last time. I, th- yeah. I think it's just. I think it's more than credit can bear. Definitely. Well. Your framework, definitely, uh, Danielle, is history is supported by your framework in terms of 2018. The, the, the past decade is, is uh, definitely in support of that. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Joseph, thank you. Everyone should uh, follow you at FedGuy12. Read your works, fedguy.com, um, and uh, buy your book, Central Banking 101. Uh, and and most follow morally- Jack Farley for awesome <laughs> series of interviews every week. Eh, eh, eh. Okay. Yeah. Oh, don't forget to subscribe to the Blockworks YouTube channel. Thank you, everyone, uh, for watching, and have a have a good day. Happy Fed Week.